Some of my poems are very definitely poems of hope, poems that try to say that I believe that the great ideals of American democracy will certainly eventually be worked out for everybody. Let me tell the story a little bit. Yeah. So Langston Hughes in 1953 is called before the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations to talk about the fact that an arm of the federal government had bought some of Hughes's books of poems. And rather than read the books, the committee wants to consult Langston Hughes about whether his poems are calling for co communism or at least some kind of contrast to the American form of, of government. That is one of my poems about the problems of the Negro people in relation to American democracy. Perhaps we should say the problems of American democracy in relation to the Negro people, because for some reason the Negro in America has always been called a problem. Well, I guess we are. Many of my poems try to capture various aspects of this problem. It's an interesting point in Hughes's career because Hughes is being widely suspected of being a communist. Hughes is definitely a leftist, but he you know, does a pretty good job of obscuring his explicit political affiliations. My feeling, sir, is that I have believed in the entire philosophies of the left at one period in my life, including socialism, communism, Trotskyism. All isms have influenced me one way or another. But this is an intense moment of Red Scare, and thus Hughes, by even being tainted by this committee, is losing speaking engagements. He is basically broke at the time and drops everything to fly to Washington. And there's two hearings. There's one in this executive session that is a closed-door hearing, and then there's a public hearing. And the public hearing has been widely covered in scholarship and is not fully conciliatory to the kind of aims of the American government, but I think at the same time represents Hughes conceding certain aspects of his own political position in favor of that of the U.S. state. But I think in this closed-door hearing, Hughes was much more ready to have an argument about what it meant to read poetry in the first place, and also what it might mean for a poem itself to be claimed as like having communist political content. And he's asked to read a number of poems. The folks with no titles in front of their names all over the world are raring up and talking back to the folks called Mr. He never really wants to offer an interpretation, and he insists that any kind of interpretation must happen in dialogue. And he's trying to draw out, basically, this committee to say something about what they really think the poems are about. They are saying it by asking him over and over again. Have you ever been a believer in communism? You know, they finally ask Hughes to give an interpretation. And now, Mr. Hughes, do you remember writing this? Put one more S in the USA to make it Soviet. The USA, when we take control, will be the USSA then. Yes, sir, I wrote that. Were you kidding when you wrote those things? What did you mean by those? He establishes this position where he says, if you give me time, if you won't interrupt me, I will give you this full interpretation of put one more S in the USA to make it Soviet, that, that poem. And what's amazing about it is that at first they let him do it, and what he does is he starts off by basically telling an autobiography. To give you a full interpretation of any piece of literary work, one has to consider what brought it into being. I, sir, was born a Negro 
from my very earliest childhood memories, I have encountered very hurtful problems. One of my earliest memories was going to the movies in Lawrence, Kansas. One afternoon, I put my nickel down and the woman pushed it back and she pointed to a sign. And eventually, the, the committee stops him because he is trying to narrate basically his entire life. And the committee stops him and they say, we only have so much time. And they also go, we concede that you've met a certain kind of racist treatment. They don't use that exact language, but that's what they're saying. And it's this interesting moment of admission, and they're like, Could you make it briefer, please? A critical work goes out of a very deep background. It does not come in a moment. I am perfectly willing to come back and give it to you later, if you are tired. Hughes just defiantly continues and never really gets to the point where he writes the poem. I went to Columbia University in New York City for a year. I didn't like Columbia very well. Arguably, you could say, this is just a delay tactic. He's just trying to end the hearing. But for me, in the book, I read it as a kind of what I call tactical critical act. Hughes might be offering a kind of biographical reading of the poem. He might be giving us this biography because this is the only context by which a poem like this can be understood. In my poetry, I've never been at a loss for moving subject matter because I myself have faced many of these racial problems all over the United States having lived from one end of the country to the other. I use that term tactical criticism. It is pulling from both Michelle Desarteau, who talks a little bit about tactics, but also, and maybe more directly, Robin Kelly's idea of infrapolitics, which basically is like certain acts of black social practice are themselves not just like resistant acts, but are themselves theorizing. Dreams and nightmares, nightmares, dreams. Oh, dreaming that the Negroes of the South have taken over, voted all the Dixiecrats right out of power, comes the colored hour. In white-pillared mansions, sitting on their wide verandas, wealthy Negroes have white servants. White sharecroppers work the black plantations, and colored children have white mammies. Mammy Falbus. Mammy Eastland, Mammy Talmage, Mammy Wallace. Dear, dear, darling old white mammies, sometimes even buried with our family. Dear old Mammy Faubus, dear old Mammy Wallace. Culture, they say, is a two-way street. Hand me my mint julep, Mammy. Hurry up, make haste. One of the things that I traced and found really interesting is that Hughes, in his last collection of poems published before he dies, he writes a poem, I think it's called On American Investigations. It's about basically his experience in this Senate permanent subcommittee hearing. And he describes being caught and surrounded by manure. Arnold Rampersad talks about this, Langston Hughes also describes the new criticism as lily pads in manure. Obviously, in that metaphor, the poem is the lily pad and the manure is everything else around it. But I think that really connects this kind of state apparatus that he's encountering and this new critical practice. Thinking about manure as unpleasant or maybe as pleasant, depending on what <laughs> that might be, you know, it's really important in terms of precisely the fact that it is that which is discarded. But also, this is me more just thinking about the, the mm -hmm. image than anything you said, but it's regenerative of the land. It's the kind of very thing that makes this stuff grow in the first place. And I feel like in that sense, it provides a really nice analogy to the kind of wider 
new critical concern. It's about devaluing that which is like outside of the poem, but in a lot of ways, like all of the stuff that goes into the creation of it, but that just gets ignored as something that is not to be paid attention to. And that's functionally the structure that the new criticism sets up for the ways that the discipline tends to think about activity that's unrelated to the work of critical practice. And so I think that in that sense, it's a really profound metaphor. Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. In this episode of Criticism Limited, we're beginning with the work of Andy Hines, Senior Associate Director of the Adelot Foundation at Swarthmore College, and the author of Outside Literary Studies, Black Criticism in the University. In the opening section, you heard Andy tell the story of Langston Hughes' testimony before the House Un-American Activities Committee, interwoven with recordings of Hughes and a dramatization of his testimony by Jericho Brown as Hughes and Kyle Minshew as Roy Cohen, created in association with the 2020 American Experience documentary on McCarthyism. As is the case throughout this season, our music comes from Joe Locke's new album, Andy and I are going to be talking about the linkage between reactionary politics and the movement known as New Criticism, which took over literary studies during the interbellum and mid-century periods, a process of institutionalization Andy has dubbed the racist interpretation complex. We'll be discussing how the techniques and politics of New Criticism redound to the present day. But first, I asked Andy to further explain what he calls tactical criticism, an alternative method which resists, but is largely suppressed by, the emergent new critical hegemony. Slowing down when you're working on the line, or walking slowly as you're getting off the bus, or sitting down, or or saying you're tired so you gotta sit down instead of standing, and things like this, that these are all small acts that can't just be isolated as small acts themselves, but that are creating and imagining contexts and worlds that are intensely theorized. And that's what I see Hughes doing in this poem. And one of the things that I do in the chapter is I, I situate it within Hughes's other kind of encounters with the new criticism, one of which was basically he got to go to a party that James Weldon Johnson hosted at Fisk, which is just north of Vanderbilt in Nashville. The Vanderbilt English Department was invited to this party, but there's a whole hubbub about Alan Tate makes this kind of claim that there's no way that white and black people can be socializing in this way in the 1930s. And that's Hughes' like first encounter with this group in some sense. And then you have him basically trying to think about what good literary criticism is in, a, in an issue of Phylon in the 1950s, right before this hearing. And it's quite clear from his remarks that Hughes is basically saying that in order for work by a black writer to be good literary criticism, it has to adhere to new critical principles. And this is something that he had been in a lot of intense dialogue with Arna Bontomps about, and who was at Fisk at the time. And I think the other thing that I think is important is that Bontomps too is lecturing against this, and Hughes and Bontomps were having this kind of back and forth about whether James Baldwin's Everybody's Protest novel was a new critical essay. They were really frustrated that this essay resembled new critical principles. So you have them in letters talking about, does Baldwin really know like what the new critics were about? And I think that you see that Hughes is trying to find a way to speak 
a critique of the new criticism out loud that doesn't immediately set off the Cold War apparatus against communism. And that's another moment where it's quite clear that anti-communism and anti-black racism are clearly aligned and clearly entangled in the new critical project. And so I think that that's, to me, that's what's really valuable about that story because you see a kind of critical practice developing, but that always has to be like encoded in relationship to this thing in relationship to the new criticism, because otherwise, if it's not encoded, it immediately sets off not just like concerns about a work not being called literature, but it sets off really significant threats of, of state subversion. Critical practice itself becomes aligned with being part of a kind of liberal capitalist U.S. state. We have typically told the story of new criticism as method. It is part of a sort of methodological genealogy of literary studies that is maybe originary in some ways because it is simultaneous with the birth of the democratic university in the post-war era, but also we rapidly move beyond it. And certainly when I was a graduate student right, at, at UC Irvine, uh, in particular, we treated New criticism as this very antiquated, distant, naive methodology that had been transcended by structuralism, post-structuralism, area studies, new historicism, and so on and so forth, however you want to tell that history. And I think that is still the conventional way of treating new criticism as this period we went through that was certainly influential but is very distant. At the time I was a graduate student, it seemed more distant, though it was not that long ago in terms of, of actual temporality. It seemed more distant to me than the 19th century literary works that I was studying, right? But what I found so captivating about what you do in outside literary studies is think about it as a political economy, right? That new criticism is a political economic ideology, or it is at least integrated into a Cold War political economic ideology. And as soon as we start to understand it in those terms, it becomes much quicker for us to start to think about maybe we are all still new critics, right? Or at least we are all still in danger of being new critics. And so I I wanted you to talk a little bit about that. How, how does your perspective on literary studies change when you think about new criticism in terms of political economy instead of in terms of methodology? Yeah, I think that, yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I think in some ways it starts with the methodology piece, right? Because I think my way into this topic was actually as an undergraduate, and I read I'll Take My Stand, which is the manifesto written by 12 Southerners in 1930 mm -hmm. that calls for the return to an agrarian political economy for the South and is very much set against the incursion of industrial capitalism in the South. Lots of anxiety about what would become known as the New South. And I think... For me, I read that first and had no idea that John Crow Ransom, Alan Tate, Robert Penn Warren, Donald Davidson were important literary critics. I mean, that was my own undergraduate naivete. Mm -hmm. But when I became really interested in this text, mostly because it just was so bizarre in its absenting of any sustained and serious discussions about race and slavery in this description of a return to an agricultural <laughs> economy in the U.S. South, which I think would probably be one of the first things that one should consider in thinking about that political economy, learning that these were 
not only literary critics, but the literary critics who were the ones who developed this thing called close reading that basically every faculty member and every literature class that I had taken wanted to return to and emphasize over and over again. And that struck me as a very strange contradiction because at the time, again, you know, an uh, 18 to 22 year old perceived literary studies as a very progressive place within the academy. And that felt like something that just didn't square. Why was this what seemed to quite clearly to be an avowed group of racists inventing this thing that, is, that seems to very much define what we do in the classroom every day? There's a longer story to this, and probably one of my own problems was that I went to Vanderbilt for graduate <laughs> school, so I couldn't escape, and maybe that's why I ended up there. I couldn't escape the influence of this particular group of critics. And I think the constant thing that I got from everybody was precisely this question of, we've all been past this. We've all figured out. We've all overthrown this particular thing. But to me, that never explained away like this sediment, whether it's the way that we told the history of the discipline that it started with the new critics, or whether the fact that this thing called close reading was so definitive of, of who we are. And so I think for me, that meant going back to like, first principles, like what is the relationship between this new critical moment and this agrarian moment? And the thing that was quite clear was that the, the way that the, uh, that history is typically narrativized is that there's this kind of separation. By the mid 20th century, the agrarians have at least tried to reform themselves. And I think Robert Penn Warren is a wonderful example of this because he goes through, and I'm not remembering the exact years, but I think in 1958 or so, he writes this book called Segregation, which is the beginning of his rethinking and recasting his positioning on race. And then in 1965, he publishes Who Speaks for the Negro, which mm -hmm. is a series of interviews that he does with black people and, and a number of other civil rights activists to try to think about what he thinks about the South and black people within it as a kind of liberalization of his previously con explicitly conservative and racist views. And I think people impose that that kind of forgiveness story mm. on the new critic themselves. But I think that doesn't really think about the kind of structure of, of what they were talking about. And so one of the things that I discover in the book is that there's a kind of middle period where they're involved in this journal called the American Review, which is a pretty like fascist publication. They're involved with some pretty right-wing folks from England. And the American Review is actually the place where in the 30s, there's this famous letter that often gets circulated in this narrative. It's a letter between John Crow Ransom and Alan Tate. And I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but they're basically like, the professors in the academy right now don't know what we're doing and it's ripe for a takeover. And we're going to boldly go and like insert criticism as the kind of new methodology for literary studies. And they did this at MLA. And the proceedings from that kind of insurgent panel get printed in the American Review. So they get printed in this space where, you know, in other articles, Donald Davidson is like making claims about how the capital of the United States shouldn't be in Washington, D.C. because it's like too far away mm -hmm. from the South. So it's like very much caught up in this political discourse. To me, that, that piece made it really clear that there wasn't such a bright line between the kind of 1930s politics of this group and their critical practice, that, that they were always aligned. The other thing that was really important for me was as I began to think about it more and just learned more and became more acquainted with methodology, both in the present and historically, the, the new critics didn't invent close reading. This was like not one of the things that they were sharp about was acting as if they had invented this mm -hmm. thing. 
creating a kind of profession around it, aligning it with both state and kind of capitalist principles that feel, that felt like a contradiction because the agrarian turn seems like it, in one way it's a, it's a step away from industrial capitalism and it is but at the same time they're like terrified of communism the original title of i'll take my stand was supposed to be tracks against communism and that that stems from their fear that they you know both thought that communism would lead to intense federal overreach which of course was always a concern for states rights southerners but at the same time they were worried that the kind of industrial activity that might lead to communism in a kind of progressive Marxian historical argument would be one that would lead black and white workers to come together mm. and basically create the conditions for a revolution against racism. And so they were really terrified of that dimension. So they were actually really entangled with capital. And one of my favorite facts, this comes from Angie Maxwell's book that describes a little bit of the history of, of the agrarian new critics, but the fugitive, which was the initial iteration of this group, which was more around poetry, was printed by a black printer in Nashville. And the reason why had nothing to do with race, other than the fact that they were offering the, the cheapest rate, which I think makes sense. It's that, that kind of elision of black labor as being the kind of primary condition for the production of this critical practice actually is kind of foundational throughout the discipline and throughout the history of the university. And there's been a lot of really important work alongside when I was writing this book that kind of confirms that, whether that's Craig Stephen Wilder's work that kind of positions the very fundamental history of accumulation that the university is entangled with also rests on making invisible and also benefiting from the exploitation of black labor. And so the new critics are clearly aligned and a part of that. One final point too, is that and this was something I was learning as I was finishing the book, but I was reading, I read Nancy McLean's Democracy and Change, which is about James Buchanan, the Virginia School economist. And he grew up around Nashville and Tennessee, and he was heavily influenced by Donald Davidson. In that book, there's been a historical controversy about the amount of kind of determinism that, mm -hmm. that McLean kind of shapes. So I, I say that with this caveat, but... At the same time, it's quite clear that Buchanan was inspired and wanted to go to Vanderbilt and saw in the kind of economic thinking of this group of what we otherwise think about as, you know, literary scholars helped kind of propel Buchanan on his journey. That's an important piece, not just as a kind of trivial piece of history, but as some might be familiar with, Buchanan was at UCLA in the 1960s and wrote basically this tract after witnessing uh, the bombing of the economics department at UCLA, where he was visiting professor, and also the murder of, I think it's John Huggins and Bunchy Carter. He writes this book that basically makes an argument for debt as a disciplinary function to control leftist student protest activity within universities. It's happening around the same time as Ronald Reagan is like employing this as a strategy in California. It highlights that there is like actually a pretty clear line between the kind of economic thought that maybe is underdeveloped in certain ways amongst the agrarians and the kind of political economy of the university. So that there's this set of entanglements that suggest that what in a new critical program is more the, the structure of a discipline than a method itself. And that I think one of the things that we as a group of literary scholars haven't paid enough attention to is how that structure of the discipline continues to shape our practice. And that might explain this like weird sediment about 
why close reading is the thing that, even as it's constantly contested, the thing that seems to define what we do or at least speak to what we want to do in the classroom and is the thing that's exported. When you look at things like common core curricula or even high school curricula, what they're preparing students for is to be in college classrooms where close reading is the dominant methodology. And that can't be disentangled from that, that new critical history, even as it's very much active in the present. I would agree with you that as we are currently talking about it. One of the things that both Guillory's book and the reception of Guillory's book have struggled with is how to delineate between the crisis and criticism or a perceived crisis and criticism and the crisis of neoliberal universities and crises in enrollment, the decline of the humanities, so on and so forth, quibbling about the correlation, causation, coincidence of those two crises is uh, much of what's at stake. But one of the things that I thought was interesting about turning back to the story that you tell in Outside Literary Studies is that it primarily focuses on a period when there certainly was no crisis of the university system. The university system was expanding at unprecedented rates. The formation of the U.S. university system, which became the envy of the world, is taking place during this post-war mid-century period that you're talking about. And yet there was still a kind of crisis and criticism, and particularly there was still an exclusion happening, an exclusionary politics. I would like to see if we can draw the line from then to now, right? How do you see the issues of exclusion, particularly of Black critics from the new critical tradition in the mid-century, how do you see that narrative connecting to the present day? That's a really important question that the book itself doesn't really strongly answer. So I'm glad you asked it. The way I would answer this question is we need a stronger account of the relationship between critical practice and the material conditions of the university that engender and support a particular critical practice. It's very easy to bracket the critical movements from the historical developments that shape them. But I think Joseph North's History of Literary Criticism book makes an important intervention in asking us to think about the relationship between the dynamics of U.S. history and the development of literary criticism, for instance. But I think I'm asking a slightly more specific question, which is like, why does a particular critical movement garner support within the academy to support its wider goals? And I think in the mid-20th century, the, the new criticism arguably served a couple of different goals for the academy. It had, at the very least, a kind of argument about its democratic possibility precisely because of the ways that it doesn't necessarily require outside information in order to engage with a literary text. Though I think that there's some really interesting kind of counterpoints to that democratic argument. There's a almost a, a footnote and in Gerald Graff's History of the Discipline that talks about how the new critical methods were much more successful at more elite institutions than they were at mass serving institutions, which I think is something that is easily passed over because of the assumption of the democratic games of, of, the, of new criticism. But I think what it seemed to have aligned with were various state interests in creating a kind of set of analysts who can think about whether it's state intelligence, whether it's even examining or doing internal counter surveillance within the U.S. state, 
so that it's tied into the kind of liberal capitalist project of the U.S. state at the mid-20th century, basically at the height of American power. And so I think that is a really important context that I try to offer about what made the new criticism so powerful. It's less about they were a particularly per argumentatively persuasive and that, in fact, that there was an alignment with a greater state goal to consolidate and unify a sudden mass of students in the university system. I think as the system develops, I think the place of literature within it, its prominence erodes over time. I think the thing about the 60s social movements and the kind of wider import of that particular moment is that the, the, the later response of theory tends to be to continue to return to this kind of, I don't want to say formalism, but this like deep investment in the text. I think post-structuralism, despite its, its slightly wider orbit, I often think about Edward Said calling it the new, new criticism for precisely those reasons. One of the things that you might, that, that I might think about in terms of that, and just kind of like speculating with you as I think about this question, is the ways that to return to the text again after the distemper of the late 1960s is again a way to consolidate, to try to reorganize, to try to incorporate a wide variety of things as text, or at least within the kind of range of methods. This doesn't, of course, ignore the fact that part of that moment is to incorporate a wider set of, of methods. And I think, you know, pushing forward just to do a very abbreviated history, I think as we head towards the, the late 20th and early 21st centuries, I think a kind of post-Bay-Dole Act university where so much of what the institution is hoping to generate in terms of revenue and its continued existence is either private donation or funding through practical and patent development. I mentioned the Bay-Dole Act of 1980 is, is an important point because I think it, it delegitimizes humanities disciplines for sure, but it also delegitimizes basic research because it's not about making money. It's not about providing intellectual property for institutions. And I think that kind of puts the humanities into a different kind of crisis mode, one that's maybe more internally driven in part because its legitimation is, the, is one of the largest departments on campus, the site of the creation of a certain kind of professional culture. I think that's something that I would agree with Guillory's account of, begins to be seriously questioned. And I think that sort of unmooring clearly unmoors the discipline itself. And I think it le lends to the proliferation of conversations about method that are very much seeking a sort of center. And I think that part of that is because there's not a clear position, at least among practitioners, for its relationship to what the university does. But I think at the same time, it's, it's really not clear to, to many of us that the university serves a kind of research and educational purpose that seems aligned with what a humanities discipline like literary studies might do. Story you're telling about mid-century criticism connects to the present, but in this case, I want to address specifically on the language of the the racist interpretation complex that you diagnose in in the book, and to what extent that legacy still manifest in the infrastructures of the university, of mainstream publications? Of how, how does that, I assume you are drawing that terminology out of the sort of military industrial complex uh, legacy that we have since Eisenhower. Um, how, how do you see the racist interpretation complex still persisting in Literary studies, academia, yeah. 
I think the thing that I would say is a kind of limited imagination about what could be done to transform the discipline, the profession, and the university. And I, I don't say that as a... I know that there's lots of people thinking about that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's not to say that people aren't thinking about it, and it's not to suggest that there that people aren't trying really hard to make you know profound changes. But I think maybe as a different way to start, like what I would say is that one of the things that writing this book taught me, I thought that I was just writing a book about literary studies. Like I was like, oh, I'm just going to write like a little like new critical history thing have maybe i'll come up with a new method i think i was i was whatever i wrote the dissertation in the period of in the period of surface reading and reparative reading so i was like oh what kind of maybe i'll get tactical reading Mm -hmm. that's what that's where the book is going but i i quickly learned by engaging with basically the black thought that's in my book that to ask those kinds of questions you can't not ask questions about the state of the discipline the literary critical methodology, its historical sedimentation and entanglement with anti-Black racism without thinking about the structure of the academy and its wider place in the U.S. political economy. And that might feel like a kind of, almost like a cop-out to your question, which I think is really important. But I think, to me, the what that underlines is that in order to really think about what the discipline can do to to whether it's pursue anti-racism or whether it's to pursue something altogether otherwise is that the, the questions really have to come about the structure that like the kind of political economic structure that the discipline sits on top of mm-hmm. i think recent like union movements recent you know organizing around endowments and budgets i think the activity that i think is coalescing around what is not just an ideological, but also a material threat with the kind of critical race theory panic exemplified in states like Florida. It's clear that I think people are beginning to think about how we might reconfigure, radically reimagine, or radically abolish and and constructively build some other type of institution atop atop the university that, that that we currently have. And I think that kind of deep, intensive structural thinking that I think feels often really separate from the question of, oh, should our department add a required course in ethnic American literatures? Those feel like very different questions. And I admittedly, that larger structural question is one to which we as literary scholars may not necessarily have thoroughgoing expertise. But I think it's about identifying and aligning with kind of movements and people who are thinking about those types of questions. And I think one of the things I was thinking about was that one of the things my book focuses on is that there are movements outside the academy that are both developing modes of critical practice, but that are also establishing like physical and material and real like institutional alternatives Mm -hmm. to the university. And I was trying to think, what's an example of this in the present? There are certainly examples that like that resemble really closely to the communist labor schools that I describe in the book. You could even think of something like the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research, which is basically as close to a, a, a credentialist, free-ish, autonomous academy that is somewhat equivalent to those. There's some key differences. Things like that do exist. 
But I also think if you think about a movement like like that of the Debt Collective, which is very much entangled within the academy, there are certainly like faculty who are part of that movement, mm-hmm. certainly people with PhDs who either are employed as adjunct or underemployed or not employed in, in this world at all, doing types of work to radically transform the institution. And I think that those feel like the places to to direct energies, even if they feel beyond the pale of kind of disciplinary activity. And I think that one of the things that we're coming up against, and this is to go back a little bit to the Guillory stuff, and this is a place where I think I tend to agree with aspects of his argument, is that like the professionalization of the discipline like brackets our ability to imagine that outside. I'm thinking about there's a for folks who are interested in that history, there's a great 1918 to 1920 moment where there are 20 unions that form uh, at at higher ed institutions. And it's at the same time that the AAUP is really ascendant. And basically the AAUP crushes the formation of these unions. And the unions themselves fizzle out. But there's a great there's a great quote from Arthur Lovejoy, who was the president of the AAUP at the time, and he says something to the effect of unions are you, he's basically, he's arguing for the fact that unions or that, sorry, that professionals are not employees of an institution, but they are responsible officers of the institution for which they work. And I think that framing, mm-hmm. which that, that moment was a moment of where if that, if the formation and the kind of ascendance and kind of permanence of the AUP is emblematic of the professionalization of, of faculty, mm-hmm. then it suggests that like the only way that faculty tend to imagine the like what they can do about the university as is as responsible officers of the institution. And I just that's something that's really hard to to break out of. And that I think we see some interesting turbulence in this moment where perhaps people are beginning to no longer think about themselves in, in that role. And that to me seems like the area where if we want to make profound changes in who has access to literary study and who has access to shaping the definition of what literary studies is, that it's movements of that kind that are the places where that kind of work can happen. And it, part of it happens by reimagining what the role of faculty and researchers and teachers in the university, what their relationship to the university is in the first place. Have you, by any chance, read Andy Hines' new book? A former student of mine. Oh, really? That, that makes a so, lot of sense. So I actually have not read the whole book, but he shared parts of it with me, which I did read, and I have been following the incredible work he's doing on the discipline and on the university. Really. Mm-hmm. That's Jed Esty again, who you may recall from our first episode on Ponzi Austerity. He's the author of The Future of Decline and the Vardin Gregorian Professor of English at Penn. So I, I just read it. I talked to him uh, earlier in this series, and one one of the things that he really brought to light for me was the centrality, not of only of new criticism, although I do think the way in which he thinks about new criticism as a political economy is quite incisive and really pertinent to this discussion, but also the faith we have in close reading, (laughs) that as a form of both appreciation 
and critique that oftentimes is perceived as the thing that binds literary studies together. I love the dialectic you have there between literary studies as sociology and literary studies as appreciation, right? The fact and the fantasy wings. I think that is a really interesting way to frame the big tent of literary studies, which is oftentimes producing internecine internal wars, right? Which is, the, I think, some of the, the problem that we're grappling with here. But close reading seems to be the thing that we largely agree upon. Right? Mm -hmm. And yet, the way Andy uh, frames it, that there is a kind of danger in that. And there is a kind of a potential politics of close reading that preserves some of the imperialist, white supremacist tendencies of new criticism, even mm -hmm. if it is denying the necessity uh, of new criticism as its origin point. And so I, mm -hmm. I wondered if you were interested in talking a little bit about the sort of long tail of new criticism that still maybe informs literary studies more than we would yeah. like to admit. I think when you look at it through the history of new criticism, and you, you could also cite Laura Heffernan and Rachel Burma's work mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of the history of our pedagogies and yeah. the centrality of close reading in the new critical fashion to the development of a functional university level discipline at making claims for disciplinarity. And, and I do want to push off that central hub and towards something closer like historical argument. Because I think, the, because as I said, I think the future of our discipline, the most powerful future, is reclaiming the historical humanities so named as against the innovation university so blasphemously branded. And that, that would be to decenter close reading per se and recenter our relationship to philosophy history, anthropology even, and certainly art and music histories. So I agree with that problem of an ideological hangover from a, a kind of Cold War construction around a, a fairly clean genealogical history that Andy Hines is, can provide. He's not the only one uh, of a privileged and exclusionary tradition that feeds into what new criticism is. But I, I really also think that I largely don't agree with the idea that bad ideologies are imminent to our critical methods. I thought that about structuralism when it was decentered. I think that about historicism, as we just covered. I definitely think that about new criticism, too. I think that the, the problem is not the imminence of bad politics to methodologies. I think that's a almost verging on bad faith way of arguing. There's a more incidental, barely correlated relationship between the bad ideologies and the the ideas that developed under them than I think most people recognize. My more dominant feeling is that the discipline of anthropology, we should watch carefully what happened to that discipline after the 1980s when it performed its own auto critique on its signature method, ethnography, which we have never performed on our own signature method, which is close reading. But when they did that, of course, they had plenty of evidence and theoretical armature to argue that was a tainted method. And they had to either dispense with it or perform a kind of meta recursive assimilation of it. So you could only then do ethnography of the ethnographers themselves. Mm. You can only ring that bell once, right? And keep your discipline alive. And I don't believe in the death of our discipline defined as literary and cultural studies at all. I don't believe it's happening. I don't believe it has to happen. I certainly don't believe it should happen. Now, I, I do believe in the critique of English as the name of our discipline, 
and the critique of American studies as it developed in an exceptionalist moment, mm-hmm. more or less in immediate parallel and sequence to the kind of close reading yeah. that we were just talking about. The, the canonical institutional form of Cold War English and Cold War American studies, I think, are being displaced by a more multimedia, multilingual, global perspective. That, I think, is good. And that, I think, is real. And that, I think, is the proper displacement of exclusionary and even white supremacist traditions. But I don't quite go all the way to thinking that close reading is really the problem there. Mm-hmm. I do go all the way in thinking that the, the future of the humanities disciplines is in historical thinking mm-hmm rather than, let's call it hermeneutic thinking. Right. And so the, yeah, historicism is not to the exclusion of close reading, but it is also not to the centrality and essence of close reading as... That's right. That's right. I am a structuralist in that sense. I, I believe the most exciting work in any of our practices tends to happen between the very fine pressure we put on language and grammar and words and figures, on the one hand, and a larger understanding of structural elements of meaning like narrative and genre and poesis. Jed will be back later in the series to offer a fuller version of the defense of historicism he alludes to here. In the second episode, On the Bad Old Days of High Theory, I introduced one of the texts that inspired this series, John Crow Ransom's essay, Criticism, Inc., first published in 1937. As part of his call for the professionalization of criticism, Ransom diagnoses three methods competing for preeminence, historical or biographical criticism, as it had developed during the late 19th century, genre criticism as represented by the Chicago critics, who we'll meet next episode, and new criticism, the version of formalism which Ransom subscribes to, and which would, for most of the next three decades, dominate criticism in the U.S. and U.K., in the academic and trade publications, as well as in collegiate pedagogy. If you're a longtime listener to The American Vandal, you know I tend to believe in the original sin of institutions. I think the racialized racketeering of the San Francisco Police Department in its original vigilante form redounds to the present incarnations. I think the Standard Oil monopoly which built Rockefeller Plaza taints its tenants in TV and publishing. Several years ago, I wrote about the secular priest who carved out safe spaces for themselves in the academy and developed a survivalist embrace of scientism which both ingratiated them to existing power and protected them from proletarian revolutionaries. I was referring to the first economics department at Cambridge, but I fear my words could be rather too easily adapted to Vanderbilt English. Nobody I've talked to disputes Andy's contention that new criticism is rooted in anti-black racism, anti-communist hysteria, and those twin supremacies, white and Western. But as you'll hear, all were reluctant, as Jed was, to claim the imminence of bad politics to close reading. I'm going to close out this episode with John Guillory, Anna Cornblue, Chris Newfield, and Ignacio M. Sanchez Prado, all of whom I asked some version of the same question I asked Jed, based upon Andy's book. 
since you mentioned that you're, you're you're thinking about and writing about close reading, that makes me want to ask about the sort of politics of new criticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other guests in the series, Andy Hines, has a recent book which frames new criticism as a political economy, as specifically a Cold War political economy. And mm-hmm. I noted a place in your book where you use Huckleberry Finn as an example of the dangers of moralistic criticism because the morals of a society change over time. And, right. and it reminded me very much of Jonathan Arak's book, which is also thinking about, you know, the hyper canonization of Huckleberry Finn and how the, right. the Cold War politics that underlie that mm-hmm. are now shifting, as is our attitude towards Huckleberry Finn. Right. I, and so I, I'm very much persuaded that Cold War politics are infested in literary studies, at least until the early 90s. And I'm, I'm interested if you see that the same way. And If so, what are the lingering effects of that? Is close reading to some extent complicit in the politics of the new critics? And thus, do we have to think about that as our sort of model for rigor? How do you approach those kinds of questions about the politics of new Uh, critics? um, The the story of the political investments of the new critics and the potential complicity of the methods that they devise with that politics is an old story. <laughs> it's Andy Hines is coming at the at the end to to confirm the tenor of the story and to confirm it in pretty strong terms because those investments of the new critics have only become uglier to us as time has passed. They were reactionary figures. There's no question about that. They started out pretty unequivocally as racists. Some of them, to their credit, worked their way out, at least partially, from that racism. So the agrarianism was nominally anti-capitalist, but in fact, it it was a pretty feeble defense against capitalism as such. And the new critics tended rather to aim their weaponry at industrialization rather than capitalism as such. And they were caught in their in the crossfire with communism, the crossfire between communism and agrarianism, because they despised communism, but communism was very much opposed to agricultural economics. So we get the rapid industrialization programs of Stalin and, and so forth. So there was a kind of complicated crossfire between agriculturalism industrialism and capitalism and communism. So the new critics were agriculturalist, but not capitalist. They were anti-communist, but not anti-capitalist. If you'll forgive me interrupting for just a second, this is one of the things about Criticism Incorporated that struck me is it it feels as though Ransom is casting away the anti-capitalism of a previous version of the agrarian critics, right? And embracing it in the turn towards defining everything against Soviet communism, right? He feels like American business needs to be a model that is celebrated. And so, right, that sort of the business of criticism made sense to me in those terms, right? Here's the the sort of anti-capitalist strain of agrarian criticism. That's a little bit more uncomfortable as we move towards an anti-communist moment, right? Let's adopt our, our method to those politics. Right. I do have an argument about this in the essay on uh, 
close reading, and it's going to be difficult for me to reprise the argument briefly. And I don't discuss Andy Hines' book in this essay, although I might have, and one might infer my disagreement with, with uh, Heinz's argument. We've known since the beginning about the racism of the new critics. And they came to understand over time that this was something that they had to rethink. Taking the longer view historically, and I think it's important to take the longer view historically because I think that historical trends do not remain the same as trends. If we're talking about new criticism as a formation of the 1920s and 30s, I think it's a mistake to see it as exactly the same thing in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. It changes. And the way that it changes principally is that the technique of close reading becomes completely detached from the original ideological investments that went along with it. As I say, it would take me a long time to show how this is the case. And my argument has to do with the nature of technique as technique, because the technique of close reading is extremely simple, and it's a formal technique. It doesn't have any necessary content, and it doesn't point to any necessary conclusion about the literary works that are being read. It just so happens that the literary critics who were employing it at the time were enormously influenced by T.S. Eliot and circulated themselves in America, at least in, in, in the UK, it was a little bit more complicated because there was a little bit more diversity of political opinion. Uh, Aya Richards is not reactionary. Emson is fairly radical, fairly obviously a, a socialist sympathetic. And yet he is a practitioner of close reading. So my question in my essay was, to what extent is the technique of close reading separable from the politics of those who devise the technique? And my answer, and Andy may disagree with me, Andy Hines may disagree with me, and others may disagree with me, but my answer is that the technique is wholly separable, is entirely separable from the politics that attached to the technique at its origin. But as I say, it would take me a while because I have to demonstrate in my essay how absolutely minimal the technique is, how absolutely devoid of content the technique is of close reading. That has to do with what, in my view, is the use of a tool. Um, a tool can be used for any number of purposes. If you use a hammer to, to beat someone to death, you're beating someone to death with that hammer does not attach to the subsequent history of the hammer. The tool lends itself to uses that are extremely various. What we need is a history of, the, of those uses over time. I'm thinking back across some of the interviews I've done. In many cases, I've been asking about new criticism and close reading um, as method. And I think most people want to find a way to save the latter from the former. State that sharing this work in progress, it sounds mm -hmm. like. Yeah. One of the things I want to say this, even though I think it's probably it's probably going to surprise a number of people that I want to say this at all. 
But there's a peculiar way in which the reactionary intellectuals of the earlier 20th century succeeded in being at the same time very smart. And we're just going to have to, I think, we just have to admit that. T.S. Eliot, Cleon Brooks, Robert Penn Warren, a lot of these intellectuals were very reactionary. As Pound, they just were. But they were also, many of them, quite smart. So we're talking about a quote-unquote conjuncture in which the two directions, opposite directions of politics at the time, moving very rapidly toward extremes. This is the period when we get in the West flowering of socialist and communist thought, at least progressive thought. <laughs> because a lot of the sociologists in the period were socialist if they weren't all the way communist. I'm thinking of, of figures like Veblen. Mm -hmm. And Kenneth Burke, he's probably the figure I, I feel closest to of all the figures of that earlier period that's so important to me in trying to construct the history of the discipline. What do we do with that fact? What do we do with that fact? Fast forward to the 21st century, end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, we have reactionary thought, but it's stupid. It's, it's uninformed, it's stupid, it's mean-spirited, it's different from the... It's instrumentalist, what? right? It's instrumentalist, instrumentalist right? Instrumentalist, yeah, instrumentalist in, in the extreme. It's, it's whatever makes you money. That's very different from the reactionary thought of the earlier 20th century. And even though we know that thought developed, uh, as in Germany as in Italy, into extremely monstrous perversions. Even though we know that, there were still many intellectuals whom we cannot simply dismiss, like T.S. Eliot, anti-Semite, racist, extreme, Anglo-Catholic, just horrible as those things are from our point of view, we can't simply dismiss those figures. They were responding to a situation in which Western society was faced with a crossroads. And people rushed down both ways. There was a fork in the road. And some people rushed down one side. Some people rushed down the other. Everyone was trying to come to terms with modernity, with these rapid changes in the conditions of social life. And people reacted in two different ways to these changed conditions. We have to recognize, because this is our history as literary critics, we have to recognize that the discipline that formed in the earlier 20th century was essentially constructed by right-wing intellectuals. And we have to save, to salvage, what was salvageable from that without throwing it all away, which is why I disagree so, so strongly with Andy Hines' book. Now it's useful, it's always useful to have that reminder and, and to worry about whether some of these political tendencies still attach to what has survived. 
from the earlier 20th century. It's always worth being aware of that. This brings me back to the que a question about like the tools of the critic or of the scholar. And one of the plenary sessions that I very much enjoyed at MLA was the one that you organized, Chris, on the question of what is literary knowledge. But one of the things I also noticed is despite the fact that panel was filled with really titans of the profession, they had a real hard time answering that question, right? <laughs> and I saw this again when I was talking with Andy Hines, who has a wonderful new book called Outside Literary Studies on Black Criticism yeah. at the University. Yeah, it's a really good book. And one of the things that he notes is the, the way in which, which sort of close reading is the one tool of literary studies that is given dignity by the larger institution, by other disciplines, that is taught in first-year seminars and other kinds of general education courses, that even scientists and social scientists take seriously the importance of being good readers, detailed readers, even if they don't understand exactly the interpretive method of close reading. And so that's the one thing that gets reproduced as a form of literary knowledge within the institution. But one of the things that I find so wonderful about what you do, Anna, is that your emphasis is always on meta-narrative, structural theory, systems theory, macro perspectives, using literature and the skills associated with literary knowledge as a way of seeing the big picture, as opposed to digging down deep and trying to create some kind of revelation out mm -hmm. of passages in the text. I think this is one of the potential tensions that we are seeing in this discussion about literary knowledge, also about what is the role and purpose of criticism, is that close reading still really holds and captures our imagination, but maybe is also doing us a disservice in students taking us seriously, maybe in the broader culture taking us seriously, I'm drawing upon Heinz's work. Close reading is associated with depoliticization, right? It's associated with maybe even the de-skilling or deprofessionalization of literary studies. Okay, so I think this is a hard and interesting question. I think just like people can't say what literary knowledge is, although I do think Fred was the only one who did his homework for that panel, <laughs> that people also can't say what close reading is. And Johanna Wananat and Dan Sinek can have some piece coming forward that's going to tell us the answer, I think. But it seems to me that close reading as a collaborative classroom practice is perfectly conducive to synthetic claims and to integrated knowledge and not just to particularization. And that the epistemic imperative of particularization is not unique to literature. It is something that divides some of the disciplines, right? Linguistics, sociology, <laughs> anthropology. And then there are other disciplines that have aspiration to integration or to synthesis. And you could say that about philosophy. You could say it about literature. Almost every book I've written, except for this new one, <laughs> every book I've written is really intensely built out of close reading. But because the objects that I read are novels, usually, the worldly art, the prosaic art, the art for community capitalism, what they have to tell us in their finely wrought form 
are things about how worlds are put together and about world making and how worlds should be. And those are ideas that I think are big and that I think can be universal, that I think, again, tend to the compositive. And so do you understand knowledge as particularization? Caroline Levine also is very eloquent on this subject, right? Or do you understand knowledge as giving us a big picture? There's a legitimate role for both of them, but maybe there's an overstating of the literary's preference for the particular, not that we overstate that they prefer it, but there's an overstatement involved in our preference for it. Yeah. I think that's great. I agree with that. I also feel like this is a silly argument that close reading is a core methodology and then it just has to be coupled with the other methodologies. So for me, it's just, it generates our data and we, we have to have accurate, comprehensive readings of literary texts as a baseline. And the reality is that American students are not taught how to do this before they get to university for the most part. Elite students are better trained at this. It's a skill. Law schools expect students to be able to read voluminously and accurately. We expect the same thing for knowledge production in our field. And then there's a whole bunch of other things that we also need to teach students. We also need to learn how to do ourselves. So I just, I've never understood this. Yeah, I love close reading and all the other stuff, all the other disciplines that I've had to learn either in a half-assed way or in a more thorough way, depending on my level of interest in order to do the job of cultural and literary analysis. I really like the, the way that you framed that, Chris. It rings true to me, especially coming out of the most recent project that I completed was this LARV essay on Jason yeah. Wingard. And yeah, you know, a perfect example. A fun, you know, fundamentally, a lot of the work I was doing there was close reading texts that other people <laughs> were not reading, right? Mm -hmm. Certainly yeah. were not reading in the way that I was and trying to recognize the subtexts of the nomenclature he was using and how they uh, represent a, a potential strategy that yeah. uh, associated with finance. But of course, I can't do that close reading if I don't also have this macro view and training in critical finance and cultural economy and the kind of interdisciplinary work that I have been doing over the last decade plus. And, yeah. and you have to have both of those things together, at least to do the kind of criticism that I was doing in that piece. Yeah. Yeah. Close reading is a straw person. There's always been a fundamentalist movement within literary studies to go back to the text. And it's a form of resistance to the reality of literary study, which is that it is a, an interdiscipline. And the reason it's an interdiscipline is not because we're trying to get away from the literary text. It's an interdiscipline because literary texts are themselves interdisciplinary always. They are always, whether it's poetry, drama, novel, it doesn't really matter. They're always bringing together elements of everyday life that come from a whole bunch of different academic domains. So if you're reading Dickens, you need to understand something about Victorian colonialism and capitalism. It's just really hard. I can't teach Sherlock Holmes stories without talking about Britain in Afghanistan. That's where Watson comes from. That's how they meet. Arthur Conan Doyle goes on to work with Samuel Clemens against Belgian colonization in the Congo like five years after he really has, has gotten his career going. He's starting to work on that. Literature connects everything. So literary criticism has to connect things. Mm -hmm. And close reading is 
the tool by which we do that. You know, a minute ago, I mean, I, I singled out students as not being good close readings, which was completely wrong. It's the entire society does sloppy paraphrase as a way of understanding the other and each other and ourselves. And we cut against that. And I think it's an amazingly noble and important activity that we have. Clarity about details as they affect everything in our lives. I think we should be really proud of that. One of the things that I found particularly interesting about your background was this interest in Harold Bloom in canonization, right? That reflects the cosmopolitanism that you're talking about, but superficially, it seems surprising or contradictory. And given that background, I was interested in asking you a question that arises out of Andy Hines's book, which I don't know if you've gotten around to reading yet outside literary studies. But one of the things that he does extremely well is reframe new criticism from being a sort of set of principles that now seem comically antiquated, typologies, ambiguity, ahistoricism, intentional fallacy, that kind of stuff. That's how I was taught to read and regard new criticism as an undergraduate and graduate student in an English department. But Heinz regards new criticism as a political economy. One which Mm -hmm. privileges modes of production, circulation, reception, and by doing so perpetuates and reproduces foundational and largely unexamined biases, prejudices, hierarchies. Mm -hmm. And I think regarded as a political economy of literary study, new new criticism is still the orthodoxy, right? Western, Anglophone, white, male, conservative, formalist, mythic, imperial, elitist judgy, that as soon as he reframed it from a kind of historically situated school into a political economy that still predominates, it made utter sense to me. And one of the things that is in the piece which I've read, which uh, the forthcoming piece about cultural capital, is mm-hmm. you, you draw attention to this way of, uh, that we privilege some things like close reading that also reflect the sort of provinciality and a perhaps uh, underlying and queasy politic. And I, I was curious how you think about the sort of legacy of new criticism that is something we poke fun at, but by mm-hmm. doing so maybe elude the extent to which it still drives a lot of the habits of English departments for sure, and maybe even broader humanities, and also it may be the way in which we are frequently understood or the way in which the preservation of what we do is justified, right? That the only reason for keeping around things like literary studies is if it continues to serve the sort of cultural capital, Western canon, taste-making capacity that new criticism is associated with, and I think still is regarded as central from the out, mm-hmm. from outside the academy. I don't mean to be facetious with the, my first statement, but to me, new criticism is, is a non-issue as a, as a Latin American critic, because it really is not that great critics. I like the mirror and the lamp, and I like 
all of those guys. It's pleasurable to me to read them, but I don't think they're particularly interesting. And in part, that is because in academia specifically, as with other parts of the world, my line of historical criticism is, on the one hand, the line from Russian formalism to structuralism to post-structuralism, and on the other hand, Marxism. Right which is more Lukács and Raymond Williams and Jameson to me. Mm-hmm. So I, I never really considered mid-century Anglophone criticism to be particularly important, maybe other than T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. So I really come from outside, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that to understand where I come from instead and the Harold Bloom part that you were mentioning, in Mexico particularly, the foundation of the humanities as we know them today is a consequence of the Mexican Revolution. You know, muralism and things like that, right? But the real energy in the people that were the founders of our university humanities and our system of cultura, as I described, the ministers of culture and so on, was the fact that a revolutionary government had the obligation to give access to the masses to universal culture. Some of it was idealist, some of it was misguided, a lot of it was Eurocentric in contemporary terms. But there is, for instance, this book that actually is downloadable online in the Ministry of Education, that in 1924, as mass literacy campaigns were being designed, they created a book of classic readings for children that had Homer and the Mahabharata and Confucius and Goethe and also Simon Bolivar, right? And this was distributed in mass printings to schools everywhere. Whether the children could read it at the time, probably not, but they, they, there is a utopian impetus on that. Same thing goes with someone that I've written a lot about, who's a Mexican humanist called Alfonso Reyes. He was a, a diplomat, a writer, a scholar. He had a phrase that always strikes me, which is, I want Latin for the left. <laughs> Quiero Latin para las izquierdas. And what he means like that is that he doesn't think that shunning high culture uh, it's a left project or a revolutionary project. Quite the contrary, is to make it accessible to everyone. So he was a founding figure in the public universities and the faculties of philosophy and letters across Mexico. And his disciples also did that. Uh, philosophy, literature, all of this was conceived to be yeah, a democratic project. Some of it succeeded, some of it failed. But I think that the reason why what we call, and I know the term is loaded and I don't mean in the loaded way, but the reason why Many of us Latin Americans are resistant to what we call identity politics. Is that we were raised in a system where decolonization did not mean the right to talk about your minority position, but decolonization was the fact that the minority position did not, or the peripheral position of Mexico in the world, did not preempt you access to universality. I understand this is heavily contested. I have had that fight many times. But that's a hill I would die on. The humanities have to afford the right of universality to everyone and democratize it. And make sure that universally is truly universal mm-hmm. and not just Eurocentric or Anglocentric. That's why I'm not persuaded by arguments like Russell Roosevelt Montas, who wants to rearticulate Western culture as the core of the curriculum because that's, that is wrong. It's everything. You really have to square the circle of making everything accessible. And I think that the Mexican humanists were always in this project. There's some influence of American identity politics because, of course, indigenous people and Afro-Mexicans have rightfully challenged the erasure of their culture. 
but the design of the of the idea doesn't imply at all that you should preempt any culture. It implies that everything has to be accessible to everyone. There was this guy called Angel Maria Garibay, who's one of the first translators of Greek and Eastern literatures into Spanish in Mexico. But he's also one of the first translators of Nahuatl. A lot of the people who translate from Latin also translate from Nahuatl and Maya, because you get both, right? And I think that's the ethos in which I was educated. Harold Bloom is an interesting creature in Spanish in general, in Mexico in particular, because the book, The Western Canon, without the context of American cultural wars, was read, and I certainly read it like that, as a celebration of the right to read the literature, regardless of who you are. Mm-hmm. And the fact that our political agenda should not erase El Quixote or Shakespeare, mm-hmm. right? As an older scholar today, and I think that my LA Review Books piece goes in that direction, I, I and someone who moved to the U.S., I also understand that maybe Harold was a little provincial himself, right? <laughs> he has an Anglo-centric canon. Uh, he was not very knowledgeable on some literatures from the rest of the world. But nevertheless, I think that what we identify with, there is a cosmopolitan sense that we read in people like Harold Bloom or George Steiner that I don't think Americans appreciate yeah. quite a bit, quite, quite the same. Uh, I don't think it is democratic to tell Latinx or Black students that they should only or mostly read Latinx or Black literature. I think that they should have all the access they want to, to, to that and to everything else, and they should be trained to read their culture and all other cultures. Mm-hmm. That's cultural democracy for me. I don't think this is completely incompatible. In fact, the history you give rooting the literary tradition in Mexico in the social revolution and such and, yeah. and, and a, a genealogy of Russian formalism and Marxist literary criticism. I think mm-hmm. this is in fact sort of the problem of new criticism that Heinz is diagnosing to some extent as, as well is that it might also just be titled sort of Cold War capitalist literary criticism, exactly. right? Exactly. And that what it does is, is obscures some of the trajectory that was happening in the rest of the world that was definitely driven by the Marxist literary tradition. He's thinking about what it means to be a Black American within that context, right? Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. new criticism works against the political work being done by uh, James Baldwin or Langston Hughes or so on and so forth. In the- yeah, but you don't imagine James Baldwin saying that we should have a a class of African-American literature dissociated from the rest of American literature or from the rest of global literature, right? right? You know, I understand why you want to study traditions like that, and that education should be available and afforded and studied. But at the same time, does that mean that you have African or Black literature in one class and then the rest of literature in the other, meaning the white literature? Or do you want to teach an American literature that, or a Mexican literature or a whatever literature where the broad spectrum of cultural perspectives is accurately included? James Baldwin is a towering writer. Mm-hmm. There, I don't think there's many more interesting writers in the U.S. in the 60s yeah, than James Baldwin. For sure. But carving him into the exception of, of being a black writer does 
undercut that in a way, right? Yes. It is a strategic move that has to be done to avoid his segregation in a white supremacist model of criticism, but the outcome of that strategy has to be that he is placed in American literature at large is yeah. cemented, right? Yeah. And I, I feel the same way on, on contemporary culture. I think that ultimately what you want is that the multiplicity of cultural voices and their histories are all part of the mainstream narrative. It is true that it's Cold War, because I think that all the stasis resistance, which I mean, we have conservatives too in Latin America, right? And it's the same argument, it's an anti-communist or anti-left inclination to think that the political pollutes the aesthetic. But at the same time, I think that aestheticist culture has its place. But to me, the question is that aestheticism doesn't need to be inherently exclusionary. You have to make it accessible to people. And then see if in a diversity of people, the criticism holds, right? It might not. It might just be a culturally specific thing that we imagine to be universal, but it might not actually be universal. In this episode, you heard from Andy Hines, Jed Esty, John Guillory, Anna Cornblue, Chris Newfield, and Ignacio M. Sanchez Prado. For more about their work and a complete bibliography for this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash newcriticism or subscribe to theamericanvandal.substack.com. All of our guests allude to potential undercurrents or counter-histories, alternatives to the political economy of new criticism, and the conventional narration of the discipline's development. That's where we're going to turn next week. But until then, this has been the fifth episode of Criticism Limited, the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies. I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening.